today on Ag News Daily. Uh, it's very much what my grandmother and dad and mom taught me growing up. You know, when, you, when you're in a place, if you can leave it better than you found it, then you've done the right thing. And so any step in the right direction is good. So regenerative ag is about that practice. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, we both have very long, exhausting days so far for very different reasons. Uh, you've been student or substitute teaching today, which I'm sure can be exhausting dealing with high school age students. Is that right? Today was middle school. I was dealing with seventh graders. Okay. Dealing with seventh graders. Okay. That's even worse. <laughs> yeah, you know, they didn't give me too hard of a time. They like to make fun of my last name, you know, it being Carr, but I kind of just roll with the punches. But it was a very long day, and I was kind of giggling when I got home because I was kind of rushing so I could get to the computer and get to the podcast. And my roommate, she works from home. She actually works for Texas Peanut Producers, and she also has a different, you know, side gig. She works for a family working there cattle in town so she's been at the showgrounds all day and we both came home running trying to get to our interviews for the day so it just it made me giggle a little bit oh that's very neat we'll have to have her on the podcast sometime we sure will I've been trying to convince her to let us do something but I think that you know peanuts are a pretty interesting crop and definitely not one that we really talk about on the podcast so I might have to do a little bit more convincing yeah a little persuasion Ashton maybe offer to take her out to dinner yeah Kylie if you're hearing this just know there's a few gifts coming your way (laughs) (laughs) perfect there we go we'll write it off on our business account expenses for the year but uh, I tell you what I'm not gonna be talking about peanuts this weekend I'll be talking about corn I'm heading to the South Dakota South Dakota Corn Growers Annual Convention. It's going to be a hybrid event this year. I'm really excited to see how it turns out. Uh, There'll be pretty much all of the growers will be at home watching the event live on Zoom while myself and the other speakers will be on stage with the conference being Zoomed out. So that's going to be kind of an interesting um, experience. And of course, as it is every year when I head to this event, the weather is terrible. It's starting to snow here in Des Moines. We're getting some blizzard-like conditions expected our way later today. So I'm trying to hit the road and hopefully beat things here. But that's kind of what's going on in my world, Ashton. What's going on in the world of agriculture? Well, one of the things that people have been talking about here lately as the Biden administration will soon make their transition into office is our relationship with China and really how it stands and how it's going to progress with this new administration. Iowa State University economist Wendong Zhang says he believes tariffs on China will remain in place under the Biden administration. And he was quoted as saying, I want to lower your expectations on potential tariff rollbacks that will likely be less important than rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines thinking about how to re-jumpstart the global economy, and even the Paris Accord for climate change probably becomes more important issues than thinking about trade policies. He also says that it's unlikely the U.S. will renegotiate the phase one trade agreement with China anytime soon. So definitely something interesting. I haven't seen too many takes on, you know, how 
people think that our relationship with China will move forward. But I am anxious to see because I, I really don't think we've been talking too much about the phase one trade agreement and our relationship with China because there's been so much going on with other things politically. Um, but I just I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, how Biden takes this on because he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when China joined the WTO. Yes, and I'm glad that you brought up the Biden administration and transition because just earlier today, the Biden team announced their plans for what his proposed stimulus package will look like. As we promised, or as I mentioned uh, earlier in the week, the this stimulus package was noted to be going to be in the trillions of dollars, and that is definitely the case. This package that was unveiled earlier today will be a $1.9 trillion coronavirus package titled the American Rescue Plan. It includes very familiar stimulus measures that we've already seen, such as direct payments to folks, uh, looking like they're going to be about $1,400 payments is what this is initially suggesting, as well as increasing federal unemployment, raising the minimum wager or minimum wage requirements to $15 an hour nationwide, you know, as well as a few other measures that would go to hopefully revitalizing the economy. It doesn't really, he didn't really specify what is going to be done for agriculture specifically, other than those direct to, uh, direct to consumer payments. Um, but this is, I'm sure, just the first of many measures that they will continue to roll out as he heads into office. Well, Delaney, I want to take a step back and talk about the Trump administration and what's been going on under his EPA. The EPA said earlier today that it would propose to extend deadlines for refiners to prove compliance with biofuel laws, but signaled it would not decide on the pending waiver request submitted by the industry. The agency's proposal represented mixed news for refiners hit hard by slumping energy demand during the COVID-19 pandemic and eager to sidestep regulatory costs associated with U.S. biofuel blending policy. It also marks one of the last actions, of course, by President Donald Trump and the EPA under his administration before he leaves office next week, next week on January 20th. The agency said it's proposing to extend the compliance deadline for 2019 biofuel blending obligations to November 30th, 2021, and an associated deadline for submission of a test engagement reports to June 1st, 2022. The EPA is also proposing to extend the 2020 deadlines to January 31st, 2022 and June 1st, 2022. The agency also said it was not taking a position on the availability of 2019 small refinery waivers, which can exempt those oil refiners from biofuel blending obligations. The agency said the decision was related to pending litigation regarding the waiver program. Yes, I saw that piece of news as well, Ashton. I'm, I'm a little unsure of how the Biden administration will handle that piece of news because, of course, this is not going to be finished before President Trump steps out of office next week. Uh, you know, and to be honest, I still really don't know what the administration, incoming administration's stance is on renewable fuels and more specifically ethanol. So it's going to be an interesting issue to see how they pick it up, that's for sure. 
It certainly will be. And going back to that first piece of news that I shared, I'm not exactly sure when we will get some answers on where the Biden administration stands on those kinds of things, because as as it seems, there are more important things at at their hands that they are wanting to deal with before they get you know behind more things like the biofuel industry. For sure, I think that you know COVID stimulus packages are going to be probably top priorities for them, as opposed to ethanol and biofuel industries. Well, Delaney, I just have one more small piece of news to share for today, and it's going back to the bird flu outbreak going on in Europe. Hungary is the latest country to fall victim to the bird flu as they are set to slaughter 101,000 chickens. The slaughter of the birds was ordered at a single egg producing farm in central Hungary with a 10 kilometer observation buffer zone set around the farm and in an international partners informed of the decision. And among Hungary is Germany, France and Lithuania, as well as some other countries in Europe that have fallen victim to the bird flu here recently. But as some of our listeners should know, it has really hit hard over there. Well, another industry, Ashton, that has been hit really hard is the coffee industry, more specifically that down in Brazil. I'm going to pronounce this bean name wrong. I'm almost positive. I know I've heard it said before, but it is the Arabica bean, I believe is how it's pronounced. Uh, One of the most popular types of coffee beans produced in Brazil is expected to slide. Their output is expected to slide about 30 to 50% this year after they've also seen excessive heat and scant rainfall. You know, we've talked a lot about soybeans and corn beans, um, issues because of the poor weather that they've had down there, but we're also seeing that for the coffee industry as well. And so you can probably expect coffee prices if that's the type of coffee bean that you drink. You could see coffee prices rise this year as we see a little less supply out on the marketplace. Well, Delaney, like I said earlier, I only have that little bit of news to share, so I'm all out for the day. What do you say we hop into the markets before our Thursday interview? Let's do that, Ashton. Let's do that indeed. And uh, pretty much everything across the board rallying today in the grain markets. We saw soybeans pull back up significantly after yesterday's small pullbacks, and corn futures are uh, still at, or newly at, I should say, fresh seven-year highs. So as we kick things off here in the corn market, the March contract up nine and three quarters cent today to close at 534 and a quarter. The Dees up four and a half to close at 457 and three quarters. In the soybean bits, the January contract up 25 and a half cents today, close at 1436 and three quarters. The November up 20 and a half to close at 1196 and a half. In the wheat pits, Chicago March contract up nine and a half cents to close at six seventy. The D up six and three quarters to close at six sixty and a half. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock market's weakness today, as we see cattle producers and hogs dealing with tighter margins ahead of these or due to these grain rallies. The February live cattle contract up down seventeen and a half cents to close at one twelve oh seven. The April down twenty five to close at one seventeen twenty two. In feeder cattle, the March contract 95 cents lower today to close at 133.37. The April down 75 cents to close at 136. 
And in lean hogs, February losing 55 cents today, it holds at 66.30. The April down 87.5 cents, it holds at 72.07. And rounding on our markets with the class three during those futures. February up a penny today to close at 18.91. The March up 15 to close at 18.63. Ash, without further ado, who are we talking to for today's interview? Today, we are talking to Phil Taylor of Mad Agriculture. Well, for today's conversation, I have on Phil Taylor, who is the founder and executive director of Mad Agriculture. Phil, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So before we really get into what y'all are doing at Mag Agriculture and you know where the idea for the brand came from, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? So I, I grew up um, in rural Maryland at the top of the Chesapeake Bay in a farming community. Um, you know, my grandfather was the only doctor um, in the whole county um, for a number of decades um, that uh, really was all about serving the farming community, delivered a lot of babies um, yeah, at home and in the office. It was a family clinic and I grew up, um, you know, under that, under that wing. And, and my, my father's also in medicine and, and uh, I spent my time, you know, working as a kid on corn and bean farms and uh, a little local dairy, spent some time there. And, and then, um, you know, I spent some time then in uh, college studying soil science and ecology and, and elements of agriculture, which uh, took me really all across the world. Um, and, you know, I got after, you know, quite a while of, of spending time in the university, I just got a bit tired of, of studying and, and publishing things. It was, a, it was a great ride, but, um, you know, my hands needed to be back in the, in the soil. And, you know, I wanted to um, lean back into my kind of agriculture and farming roots and, and really, um, pursue a life of, of rebuilding community and, and trying to help farmers um, really pursue their vision of good stewardship on the land. And, and so, you know, my background is really about growing up in, in, in uh, rural, rural economy, rural society, going, going into the cities of the world and traveling globally and coming right back home to it all. So that's a bit about my background. Well, that is certainly a great story there. That's quite a trek going all the way from Maryland to Colorado. But when we're talking about mad agriculture, what exactly are we talking about? What is mad agriculture at a you know bird's eye view? Yeah, so mad agriculture um, was inspired by a set of poems that uh, one of America's great agrarians wrote back in the 70s and 80s called the Mad Farmer Poems by Wendell Berry. And, uh, those poems, um, have a lot of humor in them and they cut pretty hard. I, I think against the, the tide of the current financial and political situations and call, you know, all of us humans back to, you know, um, a society that's governed by love and reciprocity, a sense of belonging, uh, community values. Um, and, uh, those, those poems, when I read them, um, you know, in high school and college were really influential um, and spoke a lot to my values growing up. And um, those are the values I want to see in the world. And I think, um, you know, as we as we move through the society together, it's, it requires a bit of madness to sometimes do what's right and stand up for what you believe. And, you know, I think as as agriculture has increasingly 
um, become controlled by corporate interests and, and big ag. It, it takes a lot of courage to stand up against those tides and, and do what, you know, the land wants, um, you know, to give more than we take. And um, so the madness in Mad Ag is about doing the right thing, even though it can feel a bit insane. Um, and so that's kind of the spirit of the organization um, and, and kind of where we, we founded the brand from. You make some points there that I actually really enjoy because I think that the madness, I guess, has kind of been highlighted during the COVID-19 pandemic because we're seeing a lot of people, you know, going to the little guys and not so much big ag anymore. But I, I just think that your story is so interesting. And I want to touch on some things here quickly is uh, your your farm financing and your farm planning because you guys are doing a lot of stuff. I can hardly, you know, wrap my mind around it. But when we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, what you guys are doing with farm finance and farm planning, can you just give us a little bit more information about exactly what it is y'all are yeah. doing? Yeah. Yeah. So Mad Ag, I mean, we're really all about creating a what we consider a regenerative revolution in agriculture. And for us, regenerative means about, you know, it's really a concept about leaving a place better than how you found it. It's, uh, it's very much what my grandmother and dad and mom taught me growing up, you know, when you, when you're in a place, if you can leave it better than you found it, then you've done the right thing. And so any step in the right direction is good. And so regenerative ag is about that practice of giving more than we take from the land, from relationships, from people. And so, you know, there's a sort of a deeper kind of philosophical cultural revolution that I think is starting to happen we're starting to see that bubble up all across the U.S. and the world that I think is really a powerful force to um, uh, reinvent agriculture. And, you know, how we take those ideals that I was talking about and actually bring them to action is, is, really, the, is really the hard part and the fun part. You know, ideas without action are dead. And so, you know, Mad Ag is all about taking those ideals and helping farmers um, you know, put them into action. And so for us, um, we have three steps that we basically take to work with a farmer. Um, the first thing is, is really, you know, a connection, um, a shared vision and a shared value system. You know, we show up on the land, we walk and talk to the land. We, we have no pretext of selling anybody anything. It's like, tell us your story. Why are you here? What inspires you? What keeps you up? Tell us about your family. Who are the decision makers? What's your vision for this farm? What's the history of the farm? Where do you see this farm in 50 years? You know, that's the soul of every American farmer is is living for something much more deep than maybe the balance sheet would be. You know, money is obviously critical and important, but the reason that a farmer is there is because they're tied to the land, they love it, and they have a sense of their family in that place over generations. And so, you know, we like to anchor our work in that ethos and spirit. And then from there, um, we often build from that kind of shared vision and value, we help a farmer understand the elements of their system and figure out where they can put their best foot forward with often limited resources in the bank. And so our goal is to help design and operationalize regenerative farm operations that create ecological and financial wealth. And so um, we have a farm design platform that we, we bring to bear with a farm. It's, it's sort of a first principles approach to helping any farmer understand where they can take their best step forward. Um, And then the last piece of what we do 
is, you know, it's pretty easy to dream big about what you want your farm to be, where you want it to go and craft that vision. But it's really hard to get it moving if you don't consider what we think of three main relationships between your farm and the world at large. And those three relationships are who is your community that you live with, that you breathe with, that you laugh with, lean on? Where do you seek wisdom? What conferences do you go to? What Facebook channels? Who are your friends? You're, you know, in the movement, you know, what are you living, you know, what movement or what are you living within is that kind of community piece. Second piece is where does your capital come from? Most capital constrains a farmer, you know, to, to practicing a certain style of agriculture, um, whether it's the annual operating note with interest. And so we work to create capital sources that actually liberate the farmer to pursue that vision. So we can talk about it in a minute, but we, we actually just raised uh, this thing called the Perennial Fund. It's a $10 million pilot fund to actually help finance the transition to regenerative and organic agriculture, which is, it's pretty radical. It's kind of alternative financing than you might see in your community bank. And then the last piece behind community and behind capital is then your markets. You know, you've got to make money to drive the economy of the farm. And um, most farmers operate on really tight margins and it's been really bad, you know, in recent years with the commodity markets. And so we really work hard to decommodify the crops that farmers grow, connecting those farmers to brands that share their values and will pay them a premium. Um, and so that's kind of the full sweep of what we do. Um, sometimes our work is really light touch. It could take morning or an afternoon. Sometimes it's really heavy touch. You know, if a farmer is just starting their journey, it could be a year-long journey together. Um, and so we have a pretty flexible platform. Um, we're only two and a half years old, so we're still developing it. And, um, you know, we subsidize some of our work with nonprofit government grants and all that. And some of it is more service oriented where we're charging. I definitely want to talk about the perennial fund a little bit more. But before we get to that, Phil, I just want to know if you guys are working strictly with folks in Colorado or if it's kind of a U.S. situation. Yeah, it's a U.S. situation. Yeah. So we... The first year and a half we were working, we were working strictly in Colorado, but now we're working with farmers um, from Montana, Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, um, soon, hopefully, Louisiana, Mississippi. And so we're, we're nationally, you know, we're a pretty lean and mean team. Um, you know, we, we're not a group that shows up and tells farmers what to do. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We try to use our tools to help empower what that farmer's vision is. And so, you know, our, the way that we work is, is kind of catalytic versus sort of, um, it doesn't require, it often doesn't require a lot of time. So we can kind of be light touch often to get things moving. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit more in depth about the perennial fund and how that really came to be. Cause I imagine it wasn't an easy road to go down. No, I'm not a banker and uh, I've never been a fund manager. Um, you know, I'm an ecologist, but you know, when we were working uh, with farmers, helping them design their vision for their farm operations, oftentimes the limiting factor was, okay, we need money to do this. Um, and, and the annual, you know, the, the community banks that we interact with don't have the financing vehicles 
to actually support it. You know, oftentimes if someone wants to transition to organic, you know, they can't get any financing from their local community bank because it's unfamiliar, it's considered risky, what are the markets? And and so on a you know, from a financing point of view, it's just a really limited array of things to um that farmers can take, you know, make use of if they want to transition to a regenerative operation. Um and so our vision was to create, you know, a, a financing alone that um really gave permission to the farmer to reinvest in the land. Um, and this loan is all, all about transitioning to organic. Um, and so uh, most, most times if you're transitioning an acre to organic, your balance sheet is going to the red on those acres. And so it's a really difficult kind of organic valley of death um, where, you know, you're, you're upside down in those years of transition. And so what we did is we created a, a 10-year loan note um, for operating or working capital. And um, during the transition years, the farmer kind of pays as they go, as they can. Um, and then once they hit certified organic, they enter a gross revenue share over the next five years to pay it back at 1.5x of what they've borrowed. And then there's two forbearance years in there that if um, something goes wrong, it's not covered by insurance, they don't actually have to pay the loan back in those years. So it's a way for them to confidently take risk, you know, to grow something that might not be covered by farm insurance or to grow something for a brand, you know, that um, might be harder to stitch that supply shed together. Um, and so we we um, uh, have built a loan vehicle that kind of it, it liberates the farmer to transition to organic using regenerative practices. And we feel like it's a pretty novel concept and we're getting a lot of interest from farmers across the country. Um, about using this. And this isn't to replace our community bank. It's just that during that transition year when there's most risk, that's when we want to finance that transition. And then go back to their community bank, which they're probably using for, you know, the rest of their acres and some other things. Gotcha. Well, Phil, this has been certainly an interesting conversation. And I, I wish we had more time to further talk about all of the things that you guys do. But for those that do want to learn more about MAD Agriculture, where can they find you and how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, sure. So we have, uh, you know, www.madagriculture.org and then the perennialfund.org. Um, those are the two programs and organizations I referred to in the podcast. And all of our contact information is there. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you if you're interested. Well, Phil, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Great questions. Appreciate it. Thanks again there to Phil for coming on and talking about mad agriculture and just the story behind mad agriculture really fascinates me. You know, the uh, heart of it is centered around these poems. And I just think regenerative agriculture is super interesting, which is something that, of course, we have talked about on the podcast before, but it never fails to amaze me the kind of people that we're able to find in the ag industry. It takes all kinds of action, that's for sure, to run this industry. But we've talked to all sorts of people on the podcast. And if you are needing to catch up on any of the past episodes, find us at agnewsdaily.com or connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at agnewsdailyaction. With that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.